The way people responded to the first sermon 2,000 years ago shouldn't surprise us. On the birthday of the church, when the Holy Spirit arrived in dramatic fashion, the people heard the Word of God and were cut to the heart. The phrase cut to the heart means to wound deeply the feelings of and to distress greatly. Yes, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. The Holy Spirit uses truth to cut the heart, bring about the conviction of sin, and lead us to repentance. And that's exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached the first sermon of the church. People heard about Jesus and asked, Brothers, what shall we do? I'm Ron Jones, and this is Something Good. Consider the words of Peter in Acts chapter 2. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Hello and welcome to Something Good with Dr. Ron Jones, the pastor at Atlantic Shores Baptist Church in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I'm Brian Davis. Thanks for tuning in. Peter's message was the first sermon of the church age. Simple, direct, straight to the point of what it takes to receive salvation. Today, Ron takes us to this sermon, to this day of Pentecost, as he continues his series, A.D. Acts of the Apostles. Online, you'll find us at somethinggoodradio.org, where you can hear any of Ron's messages on demand on your schedule. While you're there, check out Something Good Television, Something Good Courses, Something Good Travel, and the new Something Good Digital Library, where you can search for biblical answers to your questions from nearly 30 years of Ron's Bible teaching ministry. That's somethinggoodradio.org. From Acts chapter 2, here's Ron with part 2 of his Something Good Radio message, the first sermon. The tomb uh, was not a place where his body decayed. The tomb was a womb that gave birth, new life three days later as Jesus came walking out of that grave. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful way to view Jesus' death on the cross and even as he walked into that tomb as a womb that gave birth to new life. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, says Peter being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out on you that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. I, I just, you know, I, I just imagine Peter just, you know, the passion flowing through him right now as he gets down to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and he says, listen, we're all witnesses to this. We saw the risen Christ. We were here when He was arrested, when He was crucified, when He was buried and when he rose again from the dead. The most credible witness in the first century was an eyewitness. Remember we talked about the apostolic age and the credibility of an apostle who saw with his own eyes the risen Christ, and Peter gives testimony to that when he says we were all witnesses. 
And then there's a, a veiled reference to the ascension in verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Well, he was ascended and then exalted. And that exaltation is further described, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. Again, he goes into the Old Testament and, and, and with the use of... Uh, Bible prophecy and understanding his times and what's happening there, he, he links that to what they're experiencing. And then he says in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Wow, what a powerful message. And Peter covered a lot of ground in this, but he hit on all the high points, didn't he? And whether you believed him or not, Peter certainly believed it. But look at the response, beginning in verse 37. Remember I said that all, all great sermons answer at least two questions. What does this mean, okay? And to get to that, you've got to know what it says. Read it. Ask the interpretive question. What does it mean, and what does it mean for us in, in our, our time frame, right? And then, what shall we do? This isn't just about getting some more Bible information in our minds. It's, it's about living out the truth. And I love the way the people responded here, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what? shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What shall we do? What shall we do? Um, again, my encouragement is always that we're asking that question. How does this apply to my life? How am I to live differently as a result of the message that I've heard today? I understand that sometimes that gets a little bit muddied in, in my communication and others, but Peter makes it very, very clear here. By the way, it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Um, this is language that describes the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That is one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit. Jesus mentioned this in the upper room in John chapter 16. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, one of his jobs among many is to convict the world of sin and unrighteousness. I know some people that say, you know, I need a religion that is guilt-free and without shame. And I say, well, you'll never come to the cross of Christ without a conviction of sin. It's the Holy Spirit's job to speak the truth to us in a way that it cuts our heart. I think of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 when I read their response. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
My job is not to make you feel guilty or to heap shame upon you. That's, that's the Holy Spirit's job that when our lives are not rightly related to Him, when there's sin in our life, maybe it's the sin of unbelief. You've never repented of your sins. You've never come to faith in Jesus Christ. There should be a moment of conviction that if I don't get this right, I'm in a really bad spot. I've broken God's laws, and you come to the cross of Christ as a humble sinner. Uh, conversion experiences that are apart from that, I, I, I don't see that in the Bible. It, it's, it's the Holy Spirit's job to bring godly sorrow to our hearts because of our sin. And 2,000 years ago, when they heard this message, they didn't say, ah, Peter, whatever. And they weren't indifferent. Indifference is a decision. It's a decision to walk away and to reject the truth that you've heard. Oh, they were cut to the heart. The Word of God came at them and in them like a surgeon's knife that cut deep into the joints and the marrow and the sinew of your soul and brought godly sorrow to your heart such that you would say, what shall we do? And Peter says, I'm glad you asked. Number one, he says, you need to turn. He says, repent. It's a word that sounds kind of archaic, doesn't it? Repent. We heard it at the beginning of John's ministry and of Jesus' ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, John the Baptist said. Jesus comes along, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent is a good Bible word you can't get away from, and it means to turn. Do the 180. Stop going in the direction that you're going toward your sin and yourself and toward your idolatry. Turn away from idols and turn toward the true and living God. Peter, Peter says, you want to know what you should do? Turn right now. Just stop where you are, turn, and run toward God. Secondly, testify. He says, turn, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism is the way we testify, right? It's the way we go public with our faith. Yeah, New Testament believers' baptism, I always say everybody needs to preach at least one sermon, all right? Every Christian needs to preach one sermon. Now, don't get nervous. I'm not going to ask you to, you know, do public speaking or anything like that. But baptism is a sermon, and it's a very simple three-point sermon. You identify with the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's all you got to say. In fact, you don't say anything. You just, you're baptized. You're identified with the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what you're saying is I've decided to follow Jesus. I unashamedly go public with my faith. So he says, turn and then testify. Now, back in the first century, for you to testify that you were a follower of Jesus Christ and go public with your faith, it meant that your life was probably in danger. And there are parts of the world today where that's true, that if you go public with your faith in other parts of the world outside of our United States, you know, it, it may cost you your life. Not so much here in our part of the world, but it might cost you a friendship. It might cost you a promotion. It may send you culturally and, and uh, 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 
you know, in terms of your relationship to the island of misfit toys, you know, you don't get invited to all the reindeer games anymore because you're, you're one of those Jesus people. Okay, but you still have to testify. There are no secret service Christians. You can't be in a witness protection program and be a Christian. You got to testify, all right? And some people say, well, my, my, my religion is, is private to me. No, it's not. It's personal. We're going to get to that in a moment. But it was never meant to be private. Jesus died for us publicly on the cross, and he expects us to testify, to identify with him, to go public with our faith, and that's what New Testament baptism is all about. Dr. Ron Jones will be right back with the second half of today's message, the first sermon. Remember, you can stop by somethinggoodradio.org anytime to find out more about the ministry or to order selected resources like the series that you're hearing now, A.D. Acts of the Apostles. The entire download of this 19-message series can be yours today for a gift to Something Good Radio. That's somethinggoodradio.org. Give online at somethinggoodradio.org. Mail your gift to P.O. Box 6245, Virginia Beach, Virginia 23456, or call our offices 757-276-1099. And now here's Ron with the rest of today's message, the first sermon. I, I don't need to drill down a little bit because the implication in Peter's um, response here raises the question, is Peter talking about baptismal regeneration? It's a theological uh, idea that suggests that baptism is required for salvation. And we teach, and the Bible is clear in other New Testament passages, baptism is not required for salvation. Salvation is required for baptism. You're baptized when you become a believer in Jesus Christ and we call it believer's baptism because faith in Jesus comes first, you turn, and then you testify. But it sounds like Peter is saying, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay? It sounds like if we take this as an ordering of events that you repent, you're baptized, and when you do those two things, then you'll be forgiven, and then you'll receive the Holy Spirit. We've got to be careful with using this phraseology as an ordering of events because elsewhere in the book of Acts, people repented, they received the Holy Spirit, and then were baptized, okay? We can go to some places in Acts where, where that happened. So this is not to establish an ordering of events. The other confusion here is, is around it, and this is where I've got to get tedious, the word for, for the forgiveness of your sins. This is where it helps to go deeper into the original language, the Greek language, and you'll find a little word called, uh, pronounced ice, okay, uh, often translated for. But there are three ways to define ice or to use ice uh, in the Greek language. One, to say in order to. In other words, repent, be baptized in order to receive the forgiveness of your sins. That's one way to understand ice. Another way is so that. A third way is with respect or reference to, okay? In other words, repent, and then you're baptized in reference to the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, we would call it a, a picture, a symbol of what happened to you, the death, the burial, 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptismal regeneration, which rose sometime in church history, suggests that baptism is required for salvation. We would say in our context, no, it's not by works, even the work of baptism. And when you have a passage here that in the English is a little bit unclear, what you got to do is go to those clearer passages elsewhere in the Bible where it's clearly stated, you know, the requirements of salvation by grace and through faith alone kind of thing, not of works lest any man should boast, and then come back to the passages that are unclear, do a little bit more of a deep dive to understand are we missing something in the English language here as it was translated, and and I think we are here. It's an unfortunate translation. Uh, Peter is not saying that baptism is required for the forgiveness of your sins, okay? Uh, So I wouldn't build a whole theology around baptismal regeneration from this passage for the reasons that I just implied. Back to what Peter tells them to do. Tells them to turn, tells them to testify, and, and then he says to make it personal. He says, repent and be baptized Every one of you could also be translated each one of you. This is a personal decision for you and I to make. Should we respond? Should we be asking what shall we do? Absolutely. And here's the idea. Nobody can believe for you. And parents and grandparents, you can't believe for your kids and your grandkids. This is a personal decision. Not private, you go public, you testify, but it's a personal decision. When we stand before the Lord one day, it'll be a personal one-on-one conversation. He says, each one of you uh, baptized after you repent and do this in the name of Jesus Christ. The good news, Paul or Peter says in a couple of places, Verse 21, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Each one of you need to respond, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, here's the guarantee, you will be saved. And then he says in verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Uh, Just underline and circle that phrase, those who are far off. In the New Testament language, that really refers to Gentiles. And and Peter wouldn't come to a full understanding, nor did the early church come to a full understanding of the scope of the gospel to include not just the men of Israel, which was the audience to whom Peter was talking in Jerusalem in the first sermon. Twice he refers to the men of Israel and their families. He was talking to Jews. Pentecost was the coming of the Holy Spirit to Jews. But the gospel and the Holy Spirit was for everyone, including those who are far off, including Gentiles. Fast forward now to Acts chapter 10. Peter would have to have the vision. He would travel from Joppa to Caesarea to meet a Gentile uh, Roman official named Cornelius. And it was there that Peter finally realized this is all for the Gentiles too. And that was the reason why the baptism of the Holy Spirit was delayed until that moment because word had to get around that this was not just for the Jews, it was also for the Gentiles. And now Peter, you know, a central figure in the church, is face-to-face with a Gentile who comes to faith in Christ, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit falls on him too? you got to be kidding me. Well, 
Peter, you said it back <laughs> in chapter 2. It's for those who are far off too. And it's for anybody today who's far away from God. You may be here today and you just feel so strange in a place like this. Gentiles were considered strangers to the covenant promises of God. Well, we're all strangers when we're outside of a relationship with God. This may seem so strange to you, so odd to you to be in a church, uh, to have somebody preaching at you. Maybe you didn't grow up in a place like this and you feel far, far away from God. Listen, this is for you too. This is for you too. It's for prodigal sons and daughters who are far, far away from God in another country somewhere, extravagantly spending away their life and far, far away from God. On the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, it was a coming home party for that group of people too. And it's a coming home party today. Every week we gather to celebrate the resurrected Christ, it's a coming home party. And it's a celebration for all who were once far away who are willing to come home by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks so much for joining us for today's Something Good radio message, the first sermon. And Ron, you talked at length today about what was said in the first sermon of the church age and what it meant for the listeners on that day of Pentecost. But my question for you is this. How is it possible that the man who delivered that sermon was none other than Simon Peter, who had denied he even knew Jesus less than two months earlier? Well, Brian, I think the answer will encourage anyone listening today who thinks that maybe, just maybe, he or she has made too many mistakes to be used of God in a mighty way. Uh, let me be as clear and as plain as I can be, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Uh, Satan wants to guilt people right out of Christian service. And I want to encourage you, Brian, and everyone listening today not to let that happen. No one can misbehave to the point of having no chance to be used for the glory of God. Think of Moses who killed a man, of King David who committed adultery and murder and then covered it up. Uh, think of the Apostle Paul who murdered Christians before he became one. All these men did great things even after they had fallen. Now to answer your question, Brian, the simple answer is Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and he received power on the day of Pentecost. Uh, but there's more to it than that. The real story is what happened in the days between his denial of Jesus and the day of Pentecost. Uh, that was um, almost two months later, maybe, maybe 53 or so days in all, and it was during this time that he experienced profound guilt for his denial, profound forgiveness from Jesus after the resurrection, and a profound repentance in Peter's own heart. In short, Peter humbled himself in a way he had never done before. And this is the critical point for everyone, uh, whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ or not. Humility precedes every good gift God wants to give to us. I'm talking about salvation, joy, peace, and, and yes, even the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so yes, the Holy Spirit got into Peter, but, but Peter first, uh, first had to humble himself. And that's, that's what humility looks like. And that's what uh, exactly happened with beautiful results that I think should encourage all of us in our own walk with Jesus. 
That's Dr. Ron Jones with some great final thoughts about the dramatic change God brought about in Peter. Ron, tomorrow you move ahead in your series, A.D., Acts of the Apostles. Tell us a little bit about that message as we wrap up today's Something Good radio broadcast. Well, Brian, to this point in the series, we've talked about the way Jesus came to revolutionize hearts and minds. Then we talked about the supernatural birth of the church and then the first sermon ever given, which resulted in the salvation of 3,000 people. Next time, we begin looking at how the people of God interacted with one another as the body of Christ, how they lived in community with other believers, uh, what it looked like in terms of practical Christian living. And I'm going to take a look at some of the specific characteristics of the early church and see how it uh, applies in the church even today, right here in the 21st century. That's Monday when Ron shares his message, Community Life. Join us then for Something Good. For Ron and the entire team here at Something Good Radio, I'm Brian Davis saying God bless and thanks for listening.